Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. After we finished camp at Rough Acres, and we was in shape, we was ready to play. We had a successful season. We had a real good season, you would say. 1963 wasn't merely a good season. It was the most successful in Chargers history. With the speed we had with Allworth and uh, Norton and uh, Dave Kasurik, we had fast receivers all the way across the field, and we could really stretch them out. Probably had more speed than any other team I'd ever played on. That receiving talent was harnessed by Roque, a 13-year veteran quarterback who the Chargers signed after winning his rights in a coin flip. Tobin was probably the element that made our team a championship team. We had a lot of young, great football players, and Tobin had a stabilizing effect on the team because he was so mature. I can remember when he was, at the time, he called all the plays. They weren't sent in. And I can remember the first couple of games we played, and Tobin would call a play, and I'd say, man, it's never going to work. And lo and behold, 15, 20 yards. <clears throat> After a while, I was like, whatever Tobin calls, we're going to do it. <laughs> In the title game against Boston, the Chargers would not be denied. On the second play from scrimmage, Keith Lincoln exploded for 56 yards. And the biggest route in AFL championship game history was on. The greatest thing about it, I thought, was we got off to a quick start, which changed what the Patriots could do to us, and they had to get out of their game plan and try to play catch-up ball with us. And I think that's what got the momentum going for us and allowed us to get that somewhat easy victory. Lincoln totaled 349 all-purpose yards as San Diego came as close to perfection as any football team ever has. It was just one of those days. Everything went right. Keith Lincoln accounted for more than 200 yards. Our passing game went well. I don't think there was any real phase of it that uh, we were disappointed that we gave him 10 points, to be honest with you. The third time had proven to be the charm. At long last, the Chargers were champions of the American Football League. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hey there, everybody. How are you? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. It is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. We always appreciate your uh, patronage of this little show and uh, hope the holidays are going well for you. Uh, we are going back to the mid-60s this this time around, and it's the uh, American Football League, which we love, love, love to no end. The uh, most colorful of professional football leagues uh, over the Look, there's plenty of colorful football leagues over the years, right? But the AFL, uh, unique and special uh, in our hearts. So let's uh, let's set the let's set the tone here. The topic du jour is the uh, AFL version of the then known as San Diego Chargers. Uh, this is a little bit of a tale, of course, of uh, 
the time of them in San Diego in the AFL uh, and a little bit of uh, a understanding of the Chargers uh, saga, uh, obviously living now in Los Angeles and sharing a SoFi stadium with the uh, Los Angeles Rams and all that kind of stuff. But back in the day, right, the 1960s in the AFL, the San Diego Chargers were one of the more um, dominating teams, shall we say, uh, in the AFL. Not that the most per se, but uh, certainly always competitive for sure. The clip you just heard sets it up. And um, the narrator, uh, the unsung hero of uh, uh, of a lot of NFL films of late, uh, arguably the uh, inheritor perhaps of, of some of the John Facenda voice of God kinds of things. His name is Jim Birdsall, if you didn't know that. He's also the voice of CNBC. Uh, if you watch CNBC during the days, uh, Jim Birdsall, I think he's in Kansas somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, but a longtime narrator for a lot of NFL film stuff. That was from 2000, I think it was 2009, NFL Films 2009. Uh, the clip was from the complete history of the San Diego Chargers, which is already <laughs> out of date, the title, all of it, right? Um, because there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since then. But uh, it is actually great. Uh, it's I think it's available like on Am- uh, uh, on Amazon Prime. Uh, I think it's available on uh, Apple for purchase. That kind of stuff. But uh, in uh, in order, you heard uh, the voices of some of the more famous members of that 1963 AFL champion San Diego Chargers team: Paul Lowe and Tobin Rote, Lance Allworth, Keith Lincoln, and Chuck Allen, and and. Uh, it, it's a really great film. Uh, you know, if you're uh, even moderately interested in uh, the history of this franchise now domiciled in Los Angeles, but um, it's all a setup for our conversation this week with Dave Stidell, who uh, many of you uh, AFL aficionados may already know. Uh, he is, uh, I, I guess you could call him one of a handful, a small handful of Mr. AFL. He's got a whole bunch of different books out. He, he contributes to the uh, Remember the a- uh, AFL website that's out there. And there's, there's a bunch of other sort of places where all those memories are found. Uh, but this week, we are uh, circling around his uh, very uh, excellent book uh, called The Uncrowned Champs, How the 1963 San Diego Chargers Would Have Won the Super Bowl. That's a bold statement for sure. And we get into that because the uh, NFL and the Chicago Bears that season probably would have had a different opinion. But as you'll hear in our conversation coming up, what a team this was. And um, it came off the backs of a, of a, of a ridiculously bad season this uh, the year before, 1962. Uh, and we get into sort of how the head coach of the time, Sid Gilman, the legendary Sid Gilman, uh, got his boys into shape uh, in preseason and then some for uh, a breakout uh, year for sure. And... If you're a Chargers fan of today, you'll know that was the last time, the only time that the San Diego Chargers ever won uh, a championship of this kind. The AFL champions, 1963, it's still remembered by this franchise, uh, and that uh, was uh, arguably the uh, the pinnacle uh, of their glory days. A lot of good stuff that happened since then, for sure, on a lot of different levels, but, but not the championship, and uh, that's what they did. And they won going away against the Patriots that year, 51 to 10. And there was a lot of scuttlebutt about perhaps if uh, these leagues had been merged at that time, uh, if there was an opportunity for the two of them then to play, obviously for reasons that should be pretty straightforward that that was never going to happen because this was a challenger league and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but a lot of people 
uh, even today in uh, in 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 football uh, history circles, uh, play around with the idea that perhaps the Chargers of the 1963 season might have been uh, even better than the Bears that year and uh, arguably the best team in professional football uh, that season. So we get into all of that uh, with our guest this week, Dave Stidell, and um, the book. Again, uh, I highly recommend. Uh, it's a great read. Got p- pictures and stuff. It's substantial. Uh, it's got a lot of stats in there, but it also has a great uh, narrative of this 1963 season, which obviously is a microcosm of uh, the franchise generally, the AFL and all that kind of stuff. Uh, again, it's called The Uncrowned Champs, how the 63, the 1963 San Diego Chargers would have won the Super Bowl. Uh, it is available wherever you can find good books. Obviously, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We encourage you to go there, of course, and click the link there and Give us a couple of pennies and shekels of love. We appreciate that. Uh, helps keep our lights on and the heat going during the winter. Uh, and there's some other books, too, by Dave that uh, are are well worth finding. Uh, one that just came out as a re-release, or actually it's a, uh, a component of a previous book he did. I'll get to that in a second. But the new one is called AFL Trivia and Tales, the Ultimate American Football League Trivia Book. Uh, it came out uh, in November. Uh, I believe that's self-published or published on demand. Uh, Amazon, the best place to find that. So I, th- I think it's also available via Kindle too. Uh, again, we'll have a link to that one. But that itself is a spin out of, uh, I would argue, his most seminal work, Dave's. Uh, and that's called Remember the AFL, the Ultimate Fans Guide to the American Football League. Now, that book came out in 2008 and is available. We'll have a link to that too. Uh, and uh, highly recommend that book too. But uh, as Dave uh, indicates during our conversation, that book is being uh, redone and re-released in the next year or two. Um, I don't know if I'd wait that long, frankly, because it's so good. Uh, and if you look, if you fancy yourself any you know semblance of AFL intrigue or or fan, uh, it's this is an indispensable book to have. Uh, but uh, the fact that it's coming out another year or two uh, tells you that there is a um, a great uh, uh, interest and intrigue around. Uh, the history of this league. And and my goodness, I'm glad it's coming back out in new and, and evolved form with a new chapter and all that stuff. But if you can't wait, like I can't, uh, the again, you should find that book. It's called Remember the AFL, the Ultimate Fans Guide to the American Football League. I just said that, of course. And uh, again, all the links to all of those books will be on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 300 and what is it, 29? Yes, with Dave Stidell and me. And um, you'll find all of that there. All right, let's get to that conversation. Um, we appreciate the time that uh, Dave took. Uh, I think, frankly, it's been a longer time uh, for me chasing him down, and I'm glad we finally did it. And uh, let's get into the AFL now with our conversation we had about a week and a half ago. Please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you tell our audience what else you do relating to the league that the Chargers were part of? Because this is not just the only thing you're interested in when it comes to stories like this. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I have to call myself a charter member of uh, of the uh, fan club of the AFL back in the '60s. But um, I wrote the uh, my first uh, endeavor in in authoring uh, the uh, Remember the AFL, the Ultimate Fans Guide to the American Football League back in 2009 after being influenced by 
a website by the same name. Uh, remember the AFL run by a gentleman named Ange Coniglio up in Buffalo, New York. And um, and I'm sorry, you know, this, that is, this, is remember, this is rememberTheAFL.com, correct? Yes, and we developed a great friendship um, by, uh, you know, just uh, I would write him, uh, you know, emails about where he found all his information, who he was, and blah, blah, blah. And we uh, got into phone conversations about it. And interestingly, um, I think the first time or two that I spoke to him, he was in the hospital for some procedure, and he was looking for, you know, something to do while he's laying in bed. And he asked me to send him whatever transcript I had at the time of, uh, of writing the book. And uh, he just raved over it and said, you got to go on, you got to finish this kind of, and uh, he had a lot of, um, a lot of contacts with the former players being, a, you know, I think the number one fan in Buffalo and then people on his website. And he put word out to some of the players and the players started to contact me and, uh, you know, say, told me that, Hey, you got to keep writing this. You got to keep going. You got to finish it. You got to bring it back, bring the whole league and us as players back to life and let everybody know what it was like. So, uh, with that, um, I got in touch also with a guy named Todd Tobias, who was at one time a, um, intern for the chargers and was in charge of, putting together their archives and uh, chronic, you know, chronologically uh, what happened year by year and uh, straighten out their files. And he gave me a lot of help. Um, so, uh, you know, it just, it just went from there. And he has a blog called uh, tales from the American football league that uh, I started to just write a couple short stories uh, of players and uh, incidents that happened in the league. And he published them and, you know, it's just AFL all the way. So well, let's back up a, a step then. What is it about this AFL that even intrigues you in the first place before we even get to the specifics of this story? Well, I, you know, I was nine years old when the league started back in 1960. And um, I live in the Philadelphia area. Back in those days, the NFL would not allow any home games to be televised. And uh, I didn't have a radio strong enough to, I live about 50 miles northwest of Philadelphia, and I couldn't get the Eagles on the radio. So wanting to watch football on a Sunday, the only thing that was on was the American Football League, and many times had a one o'clock game and then a four o'clock game from, you know, from Texas or California. And uh, it just intrigued me. It was playground football. It was, you know, long passing and the wide open offenses and, you know, new uniforms and new helmets. And, um, you know, I was able to watch those games every week, uh, but only the Eagles when they were on the road. So, you know, that's what got me going on it. My first introduction to the American Football League, however, but was an accident. I was a huge baseball and football card uh, collector and one August day in uh, 1960 I went to the corner store to buy a pack of football cards and there was actually the first issue of the season was out it said football cards on the front of the wax pack I opened it up and wait a minute this wasn't Jimmy Brown and Johnny Unitas and Tommy McDonald of the NFL these were 
guys named Abner Haynes and uh, George Blanda. Who the heck were these guys? They were in college uniforms and, you know, Denver Broncos, uh, Houston Oilers. What the, who are these guys? And, uh, you know, as time went on, oh, the American Football League, that's starting up. I remember getting a Billy Cannon card in the pack and saying, oh, I know that guy. I saw him on TV with LSU this year. Um, and from that point on, uh, you know, I was like in, intrigued about and inquisitive about what, what this league was all about. I, you know, started watching him on TV. Um, this was back in the day. Uh, this was part of the uh, – uh, the, the TV broadcast that they had on about the league. Uh, uh, I couldn't even watch the Eagles from St. Louis when they played the Cardinals or whoever they played, unless my dad would go up onto the roof and turn the antenna to get that third station, uh, you know, ABC at the time uh, in clearly. So, you know, unless we did that, I couldn't watch a football game on Sunday if the Eagles were at home. So, uh, you know, finally one day my dad said, look, I'm not going to go up on the, uh, the, the roof again and, and turn the channel, just watch what's on. And uh, that was the American Football League. And from that point forward, I was in with both feet. Yeah, it's it's also it's it's interesting on a number of different levels, right? As we've seen a lot of the a lot of fandom and stuff, you know, kind of starts in those sort of um impressionable years, right? Uh, nine years old certainly qualifies uh, in, in sort of our long sort of uh, exploration of this kind of stuff. And how quaint uh, an antenna that receives signals over the air to receive television. Um, you know, by today's standards, that seems um, uh, pretty darn simple and uh, unbelievable, yet it is making a renaissance in, uh, in the in the sea of all the sort of streaming choices and stuff, but you had to remember right back in those those times, and and you you had the luxury of living in a major metropolitan area, right? Uh, topography notwithstanding, uh, you could receive probably more than a, a handful of signals if it was in the right direction, versus even some other markets which had fewer stations and signals to choose from. But I guess well, it's a, we got. Good. We got C we got CBS, NBC, and ABC. Uh, CBS was the NFL channel, uh, and that came in fuzzy. So we really only got two, and I could watch the Eagles uh, on CBS through a snowy screen. Uh, so, you know, it, was, it wasn't clear. Uh, you know, when it got to ABC, that was the, the clearest station, so it came in. But, of course, it was black and white. The camera, the cameras were pretty far away, and in whatever booth they they uh, televised from. So, um, you know, you got you got two stations good, and if you turn the, the antenna, as I said, uh, on a given time, you know, you might get the third one, but then that would make uh, you know CBS or ABC a little cloudy and fuzzy. So, it wasn't the best of, of times, but it was you know the beginning stages of football on tv and you know we watch what we could sure and an afl fan in an nfl market pretty that's an interesting dynamic too i wonder how as a kid how you related to other kids who might have been football fans um were there other afl aficionados too or did you find yourself that be a lonely exercise for you um i would say that was uh, you know we were certainly in the major minority of afl even um 
you know, some teachers who I would talk to later on when I got to the high school years um, about the AFL, they would say, ah, basketball on cleats, they don't do anything, you know, and they would say, guys like, like little Mike Garrett can make it in that league. They'd never make it in the NFL, you know, and it was always as, as Chris Burford, the, uh, the Chiefs wide receiver back in the day, when I spoke to him, he said, you know, trying to get the league credibility was like pushing water uphill, so, you know, you, you certain, certainly had to, had to do a sell job. Sure. So, all right. So you're becoming an AFL guy. All right. So then tell me then what, what about this particular story, the 1963 season and this team then known as the San Diego Chargers? Um, I, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll have another conversation more just generally about the AFL and all its goodness and stuff. Um, but I'm really intrigued as to sort of why in now in your – uh, adult years, uh, as you think about things to write on, uh, recollect, out, focus your energies towards. Um, why this team in this season, uh, amidst this AFL thing, which was, you know, ten years of interestingness uh, on a on a larger scale. Yeah, that, that's certainly a good question. Um, I was vacationing on the beach in New Jersey. So back in maybe, you know, 2013 in that time frame. And I took a book that I had just purchased called The uh, World Champion 1963 Chicago Bears. Great football team. Um, didn't score a whole lot. Had the monsters of the midway. I think they had four or five guys on defense make the all-pro team. They left up 10 points a game through 14 games. And um, it was a good book, but it kind of hit home a little bit and rubbed me the wrong way, calling them the world champions, because that was, you know, three, four years before the first AFL NFL championship game, which then became known as the Super Bowl. And I thought, you know, as good a team as the bears were, and I really liked the bears, um, I had to contest the world championshipness of it and tell the story of a team that even sports writers in the day who gave the AFL no credibility or credit about anything uh, thought that this Chargers team was pretty doggone good. They had the number one ranked offensive team, the number one ranked defensive team, they had players like Lance Allworth and Paul Lowe and John Hale and, uh, you know, Keith Lincoln, who could score from anywhere on the field and often did. Uh, Ernie Ladd and Earl Faison, both 6'5 and 6'8 defensive linemen. Um, people need to know about them as well as the Chicago Bears and what might have happened had they played against each other. As a matter of fact, after the Chargers won the 63 championship uh, over the best defensive, or one of the other best defensive teams in the AFL, the Boston Patriots, by a score of like 52 to 10 or something in that, that frame, um, they could have they could have beaten the Bears. Is what you know people like Otto Graham and other sports writers, Sports Illustrated, uh, were talking about. But the game never came into being because there was no contract, even though 
uh, Joe Foss, the commissioner of the AFL, and Sid Gilman, the coach of the Chargers, wrote letters to Pete Rozelle, NFL commissioner, and George Hallis, coach of the Chicago Bears, that they'd like to play them, you know, to see who was the better team. Of course, they knew that was never going to happen, but it was just, a, you know, their idea of saying, hey, we think we're as good as you and we think we can beat you. Um, and from that point, I said, you know, I, I've, I've got to tell that story. So I got in touch with a couple contacts uh, with the Chargers uh, to see if I could find where some of the players were and living and their numbers so I could call them and possibly interview them. Uh, and it worked out pretty well. Um, you know, so I thought, you know, people should know about this team as well as the Bears. Well, okay, so I think a lot of people sort of, you know, recognize like the the latter two or three seasons of the AFL, right? Uh, that overlap, that sort of slow, slow burning merger, the idea of the Super Bowl, the Lamar Hunt created uh, a thing that sort of uh, uh, allowed the two leagues to essentially get to that uh, best of, if you will, or the two champions, and then obviously melding into the NFL circa, you know, once 1970 came along. Um but I think a lot of people um, may sort of uh, lose track of the fact that, um, you know, within the AFL itself, um, you know, there were a number of teams that, that stood out and had multiple championships and, and, and successes and runs and stuff. And, and it's interesting that you're, you're, you focus on 1963 for the, for the Chargers because uh, based on my research, right, 62, the season before, um, they were absolutely the opposite direction. And yet um, in the 63 season really not only broke out and, and won the AFL championship, um, but they were competitive the following two seasons as well, making it to the championship game in both of, of those seasons as well, losing those um, uh, both to Buffalo, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is why this one season and this particular team versus, say, the two-year run of the Houston Oilers in 60 and 61 or the Buffalo Bills in 64 and 65. Those to me from an outsider's perspective might stand out as being, those might've been a bit more, I don't know, uh, memorable and or uh, more colossuses, I guess, or, or uh, you know, I'm just curious why this particular season and team. Well, the Chargers were in five of the first six, AFL championship games. People don't realize that uh, in in '62, you're right. They had a dismal season. They were four and ten. They also had nine starters out for more than two or three games at a time, uh, including Jack Kemp, their starting quarterback. Uh, so that in itself brought about a big change. But to go back to your original question, there in 1960, the first year of the league. Uh, the Oilers beat the Chargers and the Eagles beat the Packers. The Packers only lost in the championship game during the Lombardi years. In 1961, the Oilers won again, but the Packers crushed the Giants like 37 to nothing. Nobody was, was going to contest that the AFL was on par with the NFL at that time. The Packers were in a league by their own. They lost one or two games a year. Um, could the AFL teams have beaten the teams such as the Bears or the Lions or the Cardinals or the Redskins at the time? Maybe. Uh, in 62, again, the Packers uh, beat the Giants in the NFL championship game. And again, nobody was going to say that the AFL team 
could beat the mighty Green Bay Packers. That all changed in 63 when the Packers lost the Western Division to the Bears. I think the Bears maybe have lost, maybe lost one game and tied one game during that season. Um, uh, but the Chargers were breaking records for, you know, offense at the time. And, and it actually caught sports writers' eye to be covered to say, hey, this is a pretty good AFL team. You know, it's not it's not the uh, the Jets and it's not the Broncos who haven't had a winning season in the, in the first four years. But the Chargers were the glamour team of the West Coast, the whole Hollywood aura about them, even though they moved from, from Los Angeles to San Diego by that time. Um, so that was a team that caught everybody's eye Were the Bills in 64 and 65 good teams yeah especially 65 they were they were more like an nfl team with a big defense and a running offense than any other afl team but again the packers were the champions in 65 uh the browns upset the colts in 64 um this just seemed like the year that everybody was saying okay there could be parity here for the top couple of teams in the afl with the nfl um so, and I also was a big Chargers fan at the time with, uh, you know, as the people that I mentioned, Allworth and Lowe and Lincoln. Uh, I wanted to highlight those guys and that team that I followed uh, during the, the 60 through well, all through the 60s uh, and let people know, you know, how good the Chargers were and uh, might have come about had there been a, a championship game at the time. You're the original out of market viewer. For football, huh? With being a San Diego Chargers fan in the heart of Philadelphia. Well, you know, again, the AFL had that four o'clock game on and they wanted to show the best team. So, you know, the Oilers were on a lot uh, from Texas. Uh, the, the Chargers were on a lot from, you know, because they were the best team out there. The Raiders hadn't come around yet. They were the dominant team in the, in the latter years, but in 63, they were still just coming into their own uh, as a draw. So San Diego and, uh, and, and Houston were usually the, the four o'clock games uh, that I was able to watch. So give me a sense of so the, the, uh, a little background leading into 63, because you hinted at it, right? The Chargers actually started um, in Los Angeles. I think people completely forget that. Um, they, they do. Season, they do. Right? Yes. Yes. Now, if you can imagine, they, they, they played in the Coliseum. First year team in Los Angeles in a stadium that holds 100,000 people. They averaged a little over 10,000 for, uh, for that season. So, uh, you know, at the time, the uh, Baron Hilton was the second professional football team owner in Los Angeles. They knew they couldn't compete uh, for fans in the Coliseum against not only the Rams, but USC and UCLA were at the top of their games too in those years. So uh, he knew he had to move and the people in San Diego were really uh, pushing to get them down there. Um, and they had a you know concerted effort. They were calling themselves the city in motion of San Diego, and they wanted to you know build the city up. Uh, 
They had to convert Balboa Stadium to put a second deck on it for the Chargers to come down uh, and play there. But uh, I thought that was a good move and was surprised that they actually moved back a few years ago. Well, we'll get we'll get to the the modern day version uh, in, in a little while because I certainly want to get your thoughts there. But but um, the Baron Hilton, right? Uh, I, I think for people who don't th- maybe don't recognize, but maybe the last name is a little bit of a, of a hint, right? This is a guy who, uh, in AFL lore, right, was uh, one of those, um, you know, one of those rich guys that Lamar Hunt kind of wrangled up, and um, probably not a bad guy to bring into the mix because obviously he had the very successful. Hilton hotel chain and hospitality and all that kind of stuff. Um, the the the, uh, the team though, I mean, uh, you you mentioned a few of the names. I mean, a guy like Sid Gilman, you know, is uh, is revered in football circles literally to this day. Um, maybe a little background on on him as a head coach and maybe his approach to the game because um, I don't think you know without him, I'm not so sure. Um, some of these. Um, uh, Hall of Fame uh, uh, performances this this season and, and in franchise history would would have been possible. Well, yeah, Gilman was a player for Ohio State uh, when uh, growing up, and um, you know went into coaching in the '30s after a short stint in the All American Football League, uh, and then moved into coaching. And he was really getting a lot of attention for his offensive schemes. For example, at the time, a tight end, people were playing with two tight ends. There was no, you know, there might have been a wide receiver occasionally, but it was two tight ends and what was known as the, the, the full house model T back, uh, backfield with a fullback, two halfbacks and a quarterback. So the tight end was a blocker. He was just a guy at the end of the line. But Gilman started to push them out for passes. Uh, at the time, if you had a two- or three-person scheme uh, uh, play with receivers going out, that was a lot. Well, Gilman was sending five players out. You know, his two tight ends, one or two of the backs, maybe all three of the backs. Um, and he was really pushing a lot of passing. As a matter of fact, as a young coach, uh, people were coming to his lectures and his practices to see what he was doing because he was getting a lot of notoriety uh, with his teams uh, starting to win when he took them over. Um, so, you know, through the evolution of that, uh, the Rams, who were one of the star teams of the 50s, started to have a downfall and they were looking for a new coach, pushing for a lot of retread coaches who had been uh, for one team and fired and looking for work. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the ownership of, uh, of the Rams took a, uh, a flyer on Gilman and he made it to the championship game, his first season there in 57, but by 59, he had kind of worn out his welcome and uh, they were starting to lose. And he ended up, you know, being fired himself and to his good luck, with the AFL starting out and having somebody in their back door right there uh, in Los Angeles to come to the Los Angeles chargers was like a no brainer. So he brought his whole staff, which included people like Jack Faulkner, who went on to coach the Denver Broncos, people like Chuck Noel, who went on to cover, you know, get some rings in Pittsburgh, um, you know, and also 
uh, Al Davis, who went on to own the Raiders after, you know, building them into a Super Bowl team. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. And even years after he retired, was the offensive guru for the Eagles uh, in 1980 when they went to the Super Bowl. So, you know, the, the, the league had credibility, but the writers were kind of being not paid by the NFL, but they were really NFL oriented. And, you know, it was like starting a roller derby team in a town. Who's going to, who's going to go see them. This is, you know, a Bush league organization and they won't even be around for two, if they're lucky three years, you know, because that was the way uh, upstart leagues were going at that point. Yeah, and also too, San Diego was a city on on the on the rise, and and as we've we've learned on many different occasions, right the um, the the ultimate expression of majorness or major cityness, right at that time, and, and arguably still today uh, on a different a whole different level, is having you know a professional sports team or a set of professional sports teams to sort of legitimize your growing metropolis as being a major league city, right? So even in Balboa Park, right, you know, charitably uh, a, a cozy, uh, still exists today, a cozy uh, uh, place to watch a game. But, you know, by the end of the decade, right, uh, the success of this team led to literally the creation of what for many years was a a great stadium in, in what then became Jack Murphy Stadium over the years. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, as they moved forward after the, you know, they had the Chargers were in the championship game in 60 and 61, 62, they had the downfall of tons of injuries. And then they were in the championship uh, again in 63, 64 and 65, uh, you know, in the hunt in 67 and 68 as well. But because of all of the injuries that they had in 62, Gilman was going to take another approach to 63. It was, he felt that the, the players were, you know, going to practice uh, in, in their, their training, their, I don't know, summer training, and then going to the beach or going to the movies at night and just going out and living normal lives. And, and he saw that uh, after 62, of course, he saw that as, as part of uh, maybe a distraction to the players. So he was looking to take them out of town for their preseason training. And uh, that's when he found uh, the infamous uh, uh, Rough Acres Ranch, which was 40, 50 miles east of San Diego in a desolate part of uh, what was it called? Boulevard, California a dirt road for the last 15 miles into the camp, which was a deserted Boy Scout camp or something. Um, and, you know, he thought that team camaraderie was, was waning in 62. Uh, he wanted to have no distractions. So for six weeks, he took them out of town uh, with no communications within 10 miles of the camp, no telephone, no nothing. Uh, and all they could do was bond, practice, bond, practice, go to meetings, practice, bond, go to meetings, practice. And a lot of the players uh, felt that that was one of the, the things that put them over the top. The other thing that he started doing, which 
maybe one or two colleges were doing it, certainly nobody in the pros, but he hired a weight specialist uh, to uh, come in and uh, have the chargers get stronger. And he had uh, a weightlifting uh, program. He was an Olympic uh, weightlifting coach. So he went out and hired this guy to come in to the chargers camp. And uh, there are a couple pictures in the book of the guys lifting free weights. Uh, and the other thing that he started having them do was taking these little pink pills as the players called them when I, when I interviewed them and the little pink pills were some kind of uh, you know, a steroid that they were told would make them recover from practices and injuries faster and also make them stronger and faster on the field. Uh, steroids were very little no known back in that day. Certainly they were not illegal back in those days, but again, those were the things that uh, the weightlifting and these little pink pills, which uh, there's a, there's a picture or two in the book of the players eating at the commissary with little bowls and you can see the pills inside of the bowls and each player was required to take a pill at, uh, I think it was two or three of the, of the meals uh, per day. Now, you know, a lot of the players didn't know what they were and didn't even ask what they were. They, they either took them or they, they spit them out as some players told me they did because, you know, one of the players uh, got a hold of um, a doctor and asked what they were. And, you know, the doctor not really knowing a whole lot about the pink pill back in those days either said, well, they're going to give you, you know, your breasts are going to be enlarged and you're going to look like this and that and stop growing hair. And you know, there wasn't a lot of research about this stuff at the time. So, you know, some of the players uh, spit them out. Some of them didn't. They were certainly fined if they were found out not to have taken it. I think one of the players told me one time that, you know, back in, in these days, for exhibition games, as they called them back then, uh, they got $50 a game. And one time he went in to get paid and, and Coach Gilman said, you know, rumor has it you're spitting your pills out. I'm finding you $50. He didn't get paid for last week. So, you know, times have changed a bit. So, so do I have this right? It was, it was essentially compulsory at the beginning, but but players kind of over time during preseason kind of revolted or, or, or pushed back on it and, and it became more voluntary. Is, is that right? Well, after, after three or four weeks, the players got together and had a meeting with uh, the coaches and said, look, this is what we know about it. You haven't told us much about it. Um, you know, some of us are not going to take it. Others, you know, if they choose to, that's up to them, but they stop, they stop making it compulsory. Um, you know, after a few weeks, uh, one of the players who was a rookie um, in 63 uh, said, hey, look, I was coming out there to make a team. You know, I was a rookie. I had a challenge to make a get a spot on the team. And I wasn't going to say, no, I'm not doing that in management space. So I just did what I was told to do. And, uh, you know, he said, if they told me to get a haircut and shave my head and do everything else. He said, I was doing it because I wanted to make professional football and this was my only chance I was going to get. So yes, um, in the beginning it was, it was compulsory. Um, but after a few weeks, they kind of lowered, 
uh, lowered uh, their regulations on taking them. And, um, you know, some people have said that the charges were good because of the steroids. I don't believe that because um, I think anybody who researched it afterward will tell you that after three or four weeks of of taking steroids, there's not a whole lot that's going to happen. Intriguing. Well, it's certainly... um... That's that's really interesting, and you go into the book in in some fairly good detail about sort of uh, I guess the, the 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 tone I guess which was set up. I mean, some great pictures in there too of like what what life on the ranch was and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that sounds like I mean like that sounds real old school, right? I mean, it's like we're, we're going to cut you off from everything else. Uh, we by the way, we also have a, we got a system including pills. Um, it just it seems like it. I, I'm going to call it a cult per se, but but clearly it seems like a a well-thought-out plan by the coaches to create some kind of dynamic where, you know, it's, it's almost like basic training, if you will, versus a, a preseason. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of players, a few of them did say it was like being in the Marines again, uh, which they thought was a good thing. The other, the other thing that Gilman uh, did with his team was to integrate them uh, and not worry about what religion, color, college differences they had. You know, he said, look, if you're an offensive lineman, you're going you're gonna to room with an offensive lineman who I tell you you're going to room with, and that's going to be it. There's going to be no discussion. And the, the players actually said that that helped them get together too because they could, you know, they were living with each other side by side. It was, it was you know, African-American player and a white player in the same room. It was, you know, maybe a Jewish guy and a Catholic guy in the same room. Uh, but, you know, that kind of stuff went by the wayside. It was, we're the Chargers. That's who we are. All right. What's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com. Collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them, in mini helmet form. Really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League. How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of yore and NAIA college football teams of yore. All of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. 
great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. How about some of the players? Um, can, can you just call out a few of them for our, our audience who kind of may not know? Some really interesting characters here, if not necessarily for the the season itself, just from their, uh, you know, their, uh, their the things that they did uh, afterwards or for other teams or like a Paul McGuire, for example, is a name. You know, I remember literally from watching ESPN and USFL games and stuff as a broadcaster, but he was a punter for this team. Not necessarily a good punter per se, but um, some really interesting characters uh, on this team, both play-wise play, play wise as well as uh, uh, personality-wise. Yeah, well, Paul McGuire was a, a punter. Um, what people maybe forget about is, you know, the average punt back in those days was 35 yards. Now you see guys booming on 50, 55. Um, a couple of the players on defense have to be pointed out. Uh, Ernie Ladd, 6'8", 300 pounds. He was the biggest guy around you couldn't find anybody even even big daddy Lipscomb for the uh the colts who was a defensive tackle wasn't as big as ernie ladd uh, some of the people i spoke with from other teams would talk about lad playing over them and he said i played in a shadow all day and it was it was ernie Ladd's shadow that uh, you know you came up to the line and all you saw was you know, this guy in your face and, and they were good talkers too. Even guys like Rand Dawson would come to the line and, you know, they'd have a few words before he started calling his signals. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, Hank Stram started the moving pocket where Dawson was able to roll out with the pocket rather than take his three or five step drop because of the chargers, uh, Earl Faison and Ernie Ladd uh, chasing him so much, into you know straight back drop he made them run a few more steps before they could get him um you know um you also had people like john hadel john hadel was a rookie in 62 right out of kansas and by the way john, i'm sorry let me interrupt you for a second it, it, it's so funny because you look back at john hadel i don't think i don't think i've ever heard anybody in our in our explanation, ever refer to John Hadel as a rookie, right? In my mind, he was always like you know forty five years old and you know whatever. But it's just it's comical yeah. to me that you say that. But of course, got to start somewhere. Well, you know, John Hadel was a backup to Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp broke his finger like the first or second game of the season and was put on uh, you know injured reserve. And for some odd uh, accounting error or you know. Uh, whatever happened, uh, he got in, he injured his finger and actually was picked up on waivers by Buffalo. So they were, you know, the chargers were with John Hadle. Now John Hadle told me that 
the best day he ever had as a passer was a Kansas practice when Don Klosterman came to scout him. John Hadle was a running quarterback, but this day, for some reason, they were having passing drills, and he, well, he said he was throwing out of his mind, and that's what made the Chargers draft Hadle as a quarterback. I think in his senior year, John Hadle threw 13 passes for Kansas. Um, so there's a, a situation that uh, you know is interesting to me because now the Chargers who want to revamp their entire team and make them healthy and stronger uh, to face the competition have what on paper in the offseason was a rookie quarterback. Uh, but Tobin wrote, former Detroit Lions championship quarterback, along with Bobby Lane, uh, had left uh, the Lions through a salary dispute to go to Canada, and he was looking to retire, but he was playing for Toronto at the time, and uh, the AFL teams had a territorial rights to anybody who was available off the waiver wire. So uh, Rote was um, destined to be a Buffalo Bill by rule of the AFL. Uh, but now they had the former Charger quarterback, Jack Kemp, and didn't want to uh, pick up Rote. So there was actually a coin flip to see who was going to get Tobin Rote. Uh, to come and play for him. Uh, the only two teams that wanted to go after Rote as a free agent, since Buffalo didn't want him, was Denver and the Chargers. So they met one day in February in a Hilton hotel, of course, uh, and they decided that whoever won the coin flip would have the rights to Tobin Rote. And everybody wanted him. He was a 33, 34-year-old veteran quarterback with championship credentials. Chargers won the coin toss. And uh, as the Charger players told me, a 33 or 34-year-old championship veteran quarterback coming into their camp uh, was like Frank Sinatra coming into Vegas. I mean, he was king. Anything he said was taken as gospel. He really... Uh, invigorated the whole system that now they had a veteran championship quarterback that was going to lead them. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the start of their offensive prowess. Uh, Hadel, of course, uh, knew what was coming and actually uh, sucked up as much knowledge uh, as, as, you know, he could get Uh, in 64, of course, uh, wrote, had bursitis in his arm and only played half the season and Hadel used what he learned in 63 to be the champion uh, Western championship quarterback in the championship game for the Chargers there so you know it was interesting uh, with the dynamics there too with the old guys the old veteran coming in to teach these young players who were most of them 25 and under Um, you had Paul Lowe who was working in a post office when the AFL started. That's where he was drafted from. Uh, you had Keith Lincoln, who, you know, was an all American, um, Lance Allworth, of course, uh, was injured in 62. He caught about 10 passes and was injured after he was 
fooling around in a practice and tried to kick a field goal and tore a hamstring and he was out for the season. Um, several players, Ron Nix, who was a hall of famer, uh, was on that team. Uh, you know, just a, 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 a good bunch of players who many would not have known about, um, if the AFL didn't come into existence because uh, they weren't they weren't being given a chance. Tell me uh, how how the season generally progressed. We don't have to go game by game, but I'm just uh, I think it's also helpful uh, to remember that the AFL right at this time, '63, uh, and for most of its life, for that matter, I think uh, eight teams. Right, so we're we're talking sort of a an extravagant playoff system. So two divisions, a Western division, an Eastern division, and uh, literally the two winners of those divisions would play in the championship game. That was it, right? So, um, but it looks to me though that the Chargers were, their nemesis was really for most of the season and right to the end was the, the Oakland Raiders to for the Western division, right? Yes, for the Western division that, you know, they were coming off of, I think uh, maybe a one in 12 season in 62 when uh, Al Davis took them over and that's when he put them in the silver and black and created the, uh, you know, pride and poise boys, as he, as he called them. Uh, and he turned them into, I guess, I think they were 10 and four. The Raiders were the only, were two of the three San Diego losses that year. The Raiders um, did not lose to the Chargers in 63. And a funny story, uh, was when the Chargers were in Oakland to play the Raiders late in the season. Um, the if you if you ever saw pictures of Frank Buell Field, they used to call it the Erector Set because it was something that was built on a public park, waiting for the Oakland Coliseum to be built and finished. Prior to that, the the Raiders played in San Francisco in either Kizar Stadium where the 49ers played or Candlestick Park where the baseball Giants played. So they really didn't have a home until this Frank Yule Field was, was built. And Art Powell, their, their split end, uh, told me a story that the Raiders were playing the Chargers in Frank Yule Field and it went into the fourth quarter and they were losing by, I think it was something like 34 to 10 uh, in going into the third quarter. And the stadium, people, of course, were starting to leave. Uh, and all of a sudden, within three minutes, the, char- the, the Raiders scored three touchdowns. And you can, uh, Pal told me that you could hear the screeching of tires on the highway, which you could w- look into the stadium from, uh, screeching their tires to turn around to come back to the game. The Raiders ended up winning that game by, you know, I think 38 um, 34. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Raiders were a good team and starting to become one of the better teams in 60. Uh, 63. The Chargers did beat them out by, I think, a game or two. Uh, and yes, they went on to play the Patriots in uh, the championship game. One interesting side note was they played that game a week later than it was originally scheduled for. Do you remember why? 
Uh, I'm guessing it was because the season had to be delayed a bit because of the assassination of President Kennedy earlier in the season. That That is correct. The AFL did not play uh, the Sunday after the assassination. The NFL decided to play and took a lot of heat, especially Pete Rozelle for, for not you know paying respect in, on the weekend. But yeah, they played uh, uh, a week later. Um, going into that game, it was a pretty much of a toss-up because the Patriots were a, a huge blitzing team back then. They would they would you know blitz maybe forty percent of of the plays back there. They had a great defense always led the league in fewest yards allowed rushing. So uh, Gilman came up with a great uh, game plan. The only way he thought he could stop the radar, the Patriots from blitzing was to use motion. So on most of his plays, he had either Lincoln or Lowe, his setbacks uh, moving in one direction or another. Now, when that happened, one or two of the linebackers, had to take them because, you know, there were only four defensive backs. They all played pretty much man to man, 90% of the time. Nobody ever thought of using a nickel or a dime formation back in those days. So the linebackers always covered the setbacks coming out of the backfield. And uh, so he decoyed them a lot with motion and trap plays I think on the, the first or second play of the game, Keith Lincoln ran for like 75 yards for a score, um, you know, and just stunned them right away. So it was a great, a great plan uh, by a great coach against a really good defensive team. Did, did you, do you think anybody saw the how good they were coming coming out of preseason, or given what had happened the season before in '62? I think because in 60 and 61 they were the western champions and everybody knew what happened to them in 62 nobody said the bottom fell out of the chargers they just said a lot of injuries especially losing their quarterback um paul Lowe broke his leg the first play of the exhibition season then they lost him for the year uh that's their that was their best deep running threat uh, so they, they all knew what was going on. They knew the Chargers would be back. Uh, the uh, new Kansas City Chiefs were a team that was probably the team that if anyone was going to beat them again, because the Chiefs were the Den- Dallas Texans who became the Kansas City Chiefs, won the overtime game in 62 for the championship game. And you know, the Chiefs were still a good team. Matter of fact, I think they won their first game in Denver, um, first game of the season, like 63-3 to or something like that. So uh, they they were a challenge, but they turned into a 500 team that year. And the Chargers, uh, I think the Chargers might have won their first 11 or 12, you know, like 12-1 and one or 11-1 and one at some point in the season. Um, the... Um, their front four was so good that sports illustrated this was this was back in 62 was uh going to write an article about what they were calling the fearsome foursome of the san diego chargers but uh then injuries came and uh they started to lose a few games so the article never appeared in sports illustrated 
but they started calling the Rams the fearsome foursome with Rosie Greer and, you know, Deacon Jones and, uh, you know, Merlin Olson. So, um, you know, uh, the Chargers were a really good team that uh, I think they went two or three years without losing a preseason game. Um, and they, they didn't lose for a while. Um, you know, I think I, I, they ended up, um, what, 11 and three, I guess it was. All right. Take me, take me to the championship game. This was against the boss, the then Boston Patriots. Um, and uh, it's interesting, too, because I, what I, I didn't realize, uh, I just remembered, is the uh, – I, I guess the question really is, did, did Boston – I mean, so Boston and Buffalo tied uh, in the Eastern Conference, 7-6-1 and one that season. Um, it almost seems to the outsider uh, revisionist here that um, the Patriots really were already behind the eight ball because they had to play a playoff um, – a playoff, if you will, against the Bills uh, to determine who was going to win the Eastern uh, Division and then go on to to play the Chargers in in the final game. Is that is there any credence to that? Do they have a disadvantage for having to play an extra game within their own division to kind of settle who is going to play the Chargers in the final? Uh, well, um, it happened one other time in the AFL, and that was the final season when the Chiefs had to play the Raiders in a playoff game and then the Chiefs beat the Raiders and then went on to win the Super Bowl so playing that extra game I don't know uh they played it in the snow I know that it was a you know a couple inches of snow on the ground when the Bills and Patriots played um so there wasn't much offense uh but again I think the Patriots came in they had um you know, Gino Capaletti as a wide receiver. They had Babe Perilli at quarterback. They had, um, you know, Ron Burton as a running back. They had a, you know, they had a good offense, a very good offensive line. Um, their defensive front seven were very good, but they had some holes in the secondary. The Patriots, for some reason, uh, had a, an, uh, a pass defense that was not a lockdown type defense. Uh, and some people felt that opposing teams passed more on the Patriots than any other team because they knew with the front seven that they had, especially their front four, um, they couldn't run on them. So they were running less uh, because they couldn't run and they had to pass more so you know it made the secondary vulnerable of course and and the chargers um had a, had a good game plan with their motion with their uh, uh their decoys of trap plays coming through um uh, really really good game plan is uh, is what took them to the end i see here that uh you know the the, the patriots passed 29 times for 189 yards uh, and the Chargers only passed for 173 yards uh, but they ran for well over 200 yards I think so just when you think you have the best defense in the front uh, a couple of uh, different moves uh, and a couple holes that ended up, I think they chargers had, I think three runs for, for over 50 or 60 yards during that game. 
Well, okay. So, I mean, they, they, they won going away, right? 51 to 10. It, was, it wasn't even close. It was like 21 to 7 at, just after the first quarter. It was 31 to 10 at halftime. And, and Boston didn't even score in the third and fourth quarters, right? So, right. Um, right. so, so a dominating performance and, and that on the back of a, um, a tough divisional, uh, victory over Oakland and, and, uh, an 11 and three or 10 and three regular season or 11 and three. Um, so where does then the, the comparison to the NFL, you know, and the idea of, you know, could they have been, you know, better or beaten um, the Bears from the NFL that season? Because I'd have to think that every season the AFL would probably want that narrative out there going, geez, if only we could play the winner of the NFL this year and really prove that we might have been the better team this year. But why the Chargers in 63 versus, say, any of the other AFL seasons uh, and not including the ones, obviously, when they were actually playing the NFL in the, the Super Bowl. Well, I think people thought that the Bears were a very limited offensive team and that as good as they were on defense, that they really didn't have the speed the Chargers did on offense to keep up with them. Uh, the The Bears had Bill Wade, who was a decent running quarterback, not a great strong arm uh, as a thrower, you know, his, his best receiver was a young Mike Ditka. His wide receivers were a guy named John Farrington. Nobody out of Chicago ever heard of that guy. Uh, Johnny Morris and the running backs were Willie Gallimore and Ronnie Bull. Uh, Not nobody. I don't think any of, of their runners were in the top 10 of the NFL in running Bill Wade was certainly one of the uh, people who were in the middle of the pack as as a thrower Um, and their defense. Of course, they relied on their defense. Uh, They, you know, averaging, giving up only 10 points a game on average um, was really a lockdown. So, uh, but again, people felt that the speed of the chargers was not to be compared to, uh, you know, the monsters of the midway. Um, so it became, became a story that, Hey, this, this team in the AFL is somebody is something different than we've seen before, you know? Uh, and I think they could have beaten the champion because it wasn't the Packers, you know, that, that, that became a storyline as well. Um, so that became a, a discussion, um, in many a magazine and probably a whole lot of bar rooms too. No, it's interesting stuff. And obviously there are computer simulations out there and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's a whole sort of, um, I guess, sub genre of sports history about, you know, what if, and, and uh, not only what if like a certain player had not been injured or whatever, or a situation had changed. Uh, but, you know, of these teams, especially in com- competitive leagues, right, in ho- <clears throat> hockey and basketball and, you know, all these, uh, the, the AFL, arguably the original modern challenger league, uh, I'm sure there's a, a hefty bit of, of uh, a barroom bets for those of a certain age uh, where uh, some of the AFL greats could, um, and look, and, and look now harmonized, right, in the NFL, right? I mean, the absolute absorption of all this, the stats and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, 
and that's the ultimate high praise. But um, I guess for those first years when they were directly competitive with each other, and certainly probably at least the decade of their of their eventual merger or amalgamation right into this AFC thing, I'm sure there has always been sort of this uh, conjecture. I'm sure it's gotten less so over time about how good, how equal, and potentially how much better uh, an AFL squad, a player, uh, a, a, a scenario was better than that of the NFL. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some of that was media-driven because people who wanted to read about the AFL couldn't find anything to read about them because, um, you know, I did kind of a informal research on just a magazine like Sports Illustrated where, you know, the first time that a AFL player was on the cover of Sports Illustrated was five years into their into their um, existence and the NFL at that point had like 20 uh, covers. So, you know, just that kind of uh, comparison was like, uh, well, you know, the AFL people, (laughs) interesting story. When I was trying to get uh, my first book, uh, remember the AFL uh, published, I was calling around to publishers and, you know, they were asking questions. And I remember one of them said, well, what's the book about? I said, the AFL. And he goes, well, that's not old enough. I said, what do you mean? It was the 60s. He goes, arena football was back in the 60s. And I said, you don't even know about the AFL. <laughs> so Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess I mean, that acronym, right, to a certain generation is uh, already been usurped, right? Yeah, well, I, I was on um, a radio show a couple of years ago when the Chargers book came out, and I started talking about the history of the AFL. And, you know, the, the, the host of the show, I mentioned that the, you know, the Chargers were going back to Los Angeles, and they said, what? The Chargers started in Los Angeles? So, uh, you know, people just didn't know about the American Football League unless you were in – uh, like myself, I guess, in the you know uh, renegade league, uh, something new, something wide open, um, and and again, a lot of a lot of people felt that uh, you know the wide openness of the AFL brought in a lot of younger uh, fans uh, compared to still the three yards in a cloud of dust. I remember reading a quote by Vince Lombardi uh, by saying. You know, football is a man's game and it's a knockdown game. And unless you can run, you're not a real football player or a football team. Uh, Gilman and some of the other AFL coaches came in and said, we don't want to give you the same thing the NFL has because they're successful. They're good. Um, We're going to give you a different product and we're going to pass. And, you know, it became known as, you know, basketball on cleats to a lot. But just to give you some statistics here. Uh, in 1960, uh, the rushing, uh, the passing attempts for the NFL were 26 a game and the AFL 33 a game. The running in 1960 was 32 a game for the NFL and 30 for the AFL. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was basketball on cleats where nobody, it was playground football and everybody was passing on every play. It was it was pretty much balanced, leaning more towards passing in the AFL. The Chargers with Gilman were the best of them all. Uh, how many people know out there that the West Coast offense was based on Sid Gilman's game plans? 
Bill Walsh, uh, you know, was a student of Gilman. Air Coriel with the Dan Fouts and John Jefferson and, uh, you know, those, those Chargers teams back in the 80s. Uh, Coriel at the time that Gilman was in San Diego was the coach of San Diego State. And he used to bring his coaching staff and his offensive players to watch Sid Gilman's practices with the Chargers back in the 60s. So, you know, this guy, Sid Gilman, who came in and developed his game plan that he took out of his own, uh, his own mind and, and made a name for himself in, in colleges uh, really was the boilerplate for the AFL and hard to believe people are still using his offensive plans today. So let me use that then as the segue to sort of our cul-de-sac here. Um, what of, uh, of the Chargers franchise after the merger um, and and now domiciled in Los Angeles. This is this still after all that history, still remains the 1963 championship season, the only championship uh, that this Chargers franchise has won. Um, and uh, and that San Diego, frankly, has had on a professional level. Um, what do you think of the franchise now? Its current state. Um, it's shared. Um, arena in Los Angeles and, and, and having gone back to Los Angeles uh, under odd and strange circumstances and ownership. Um, any thoughts about the modern day version of the Chargers? And by the way, how much reverence have they given to this, this, uh, this championship season? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't see the Chargers enough to know anything about what's going on with them. Um, uh, so I, I couldn't even comment on that. I know that in the late 60s and early 70s, of course, in 69, Gilman started to get ill and did not finish the season um, and then resurrected himself in Houston a few years after that. Um, but ownership kind of was their demise. Uh, there was some talk of their influence of, uh, of drugs back in the early 70s, uh, whether that was uh, part of the reason um, of, of their demise also. I know in, in 69, they started to go downhill, and then there was a run for a while, I guess, until Tomlinson came, and uh, you know they were rejuvenated a bit. Um, they did honor the 63 team back, I think, in about 13 uh, um, yeah, because, um, yeah, there was a, there was a chapter in the, uh, in the, remember the AFL book that I did about the Chargers championship season, uh, that they wanted to use in, um, in their, their, uh, program to honor the 63 team. But other than that, I, I mean, I don't, I haven't stayed in touch with, um, enough of the Charger people to know, um, what's happening with them today. Uh, but I think what I learned over the years in my research for all of the both books was that anything that happened in the sixties with these AFL teams was thrown into boxes, uncatalogued. Um, I, I remember speaking to a front office person, a PR person for the jets back in 
maybe 2008, and they said, we have an attic full of pictures and history stuff of the Titans of the, you know, the early 60s and the 60s Jets, but it's all thrown in boxes and somebody, you know, in the building we use. And I even offered to come down uh, on my own dime and, and do some research and, and catalog all of their stuff for them. Uh, if they would let me use some of their, their pictures and information and they just weren't interested, they really didn't care much about what happened in the sixties uh, with the AFL. Yeah, I guess that's where I was sort of going. And, and I always try to uh, sort of end these conversations around that. And it tends to sort of circle around how much or how little uh, do the current versions of these teams uh, if they have been previously domiciled or, or they still live on, uh, how much reverence and or remembrance uh, is there, has there been? Um, you know, I, I do know that this team has been sort of in the quote unquote ring of honor. Uh, I think the, uh, the the reference that you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, a number of years ago, right? So there's there's clearly, and it's also a little different, I guess, in this case, in that the Chargers uh, we're in a league that got fully absorbed or merged into the NFL. So, and there's been a, you know, a retrofitting of that history. Um, so it's not sort of um, taboo, shall we say, versus say, you know, uh, more prickly situations like the Hartford Whalers in the NHL being absorbed or, or relocated, and and uh, until only very recently, um, the uh, the hurricanes in in raleigh durham uh you know uh, and their their ownership actually uh wanting to remember that there was the hartford version of the team right i mean there's a lot of whitewashing that goes on not just in the nhl but in else other places right too where there's either a begrudging recognition or remembrance or frankly just an out and out just uh, uh amnesia uh for various reasons money being probably primary primary among them um, and that's the stuff that gets us kind of steamed, right? Because it's like, it's not old men yelling at the clouds, but I think it's, it's you know, to understand that there were teams uh, in previous incarnations or there was a history to a franchise that was before all of what you're experiencing today. And in this case, even more important because it's the only championship in the lineage, right? Why would you want to forget that or sweep that under the carpet, Right. Uh, I, I agree totally. I know when the merger came about, um, many AFL people or leadership and below wanted to continue calling it the AFL rather than the AFC uh, for conference. You know, you had, you had the American League and the National League and Major League Baseball. Uh, but not the AFL and the NFL in pro football. It's the AFC and the NFC. There was a lot of people that uh, didn't like that happening. Um, and, you know, did you, you know when, when there was a merger also, and I'm kind of going in a different direction, but the AFL had to pay the NFL $18 million to be absorbed, uh, <laughs> kind of like a membership fee. Um uh, so yeah, moving to San Diego, becoming who they were, the San Diego chargers, uh, remember that in 60 and 61, the chargers lost a championship by a touchdown or less in 64, they played the bills without Lance Allworth, who got 
hurt in the last game of the season against the Raiders. Uh, they had their quarterback Tobin wrote with bursitis. So they were, you know, pulling and pulling him, putting him back in uh, occasionally. Uh, Keith Lincoln with the hit from Monty Stratton, which they call the hit heard around the world. He almost buckled Lincoln in half with the tackle and put him out, you know, after the first quarter. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of people there who said, yeah, you know, if, if they would have had over Lincoln for the whole game and wrote with a strong arm, it would have been a different turnout possibly. And then the next year in 65, uh, they got shut out by a really, really good Buffalo Bills team. Um, uh, but so yeah, the, the Chargers. Why didn't they win it uh, anymore? Um, could have been a different whole story for them, being the team that the the, uh, the Packers were in the '60s. Uh, you know, could have been the dominant team as it was. Um, they got into more than their share of AFL championship games. Unfortunately, that one team was was all they could take away from it with them. All right, our thanks to Dave and long live the American Football League. The books must get. Let's start with the seminal work that is available now and is going to be redone in the next year or two. But get the copy now. Enjoy it. Uh, and uh, you will uh, uh, be glad you did. It's uh, clearly the uh, this indispensable history of the AFL. It's called Remember the AFL, the Ultimate Fans Guide to the American Football League. It is um, available Wherever good books are found, uh, is published by Clarice Press. And again, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. This episode, just search it up, 329 with Dave Stidell. You'll find a link. You will also find a link to his current book, new book, the spin-out of said earlier book called AFL Trivia and Tales, the Ultimate American Football League Trivia Book. That is self-published, published on demand. That's through Amazon. Again, we'll have a link to that on our website as well. And of course... If you're intrigued with the story that we just spent a good hour plus on, uh, you will uh, love this book about the San Diego Chargers of 1963. It's called, again, The Uncrowned Champs, How the 1963 San Diego Chargers Would Have Won the Super Bowl. It is published by Sports Publishing Incorporated, and uh, all those versions and then some are available not only on Amazon, but again, through our links on our website, which is once again, say it with me, shall you, will you? Good seats still available.com. Uh, you'll find all of our episodes. We post them there. You can stream them there, all that kind of stuff. Of course, the best way to get our show every week and make sure there's a topic or something that you're interested in, just uh, follow us or, or add us to your uh, your various favorite podcast feeds or players or whatever, uh, however you ingest podcasts. Uh, we're there. We publish every early Monday morning, generally, without uh, uh, too much... Um, uh, variants to that schedule and uh, of course if you like what you hear please rate and review us wherever you can five stars always appreciated uh, constructive commentary uh, especially if it's uh, you know helpful and uh, and positive we love that too that helps our algorithms uh, to for other people to find us and uh, we appreciate that to know and we also appreciate uh, when you send us email of uh, of happiness and uh, encouragement we're at hello at good seats still available dot com you'll find us on various socials uh, we're on the the uh, the Twitter X thing at Good Seats Still. Uh, we are on the uh, 
Instagram thing at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook also at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find us on YouTube also at Good Seats Still Available. We'll see what social looks like in 2024. I think we're going to rethink some of our various platforms. But uh, if you follow us there, uh, we appreciate that as well. Our thanks once again to the great Jerry Payne of Jerry Payne audio excellence he's the main man for this show to get uh, the pieces together and uh, we could not do this thing without him and we could not do it without you our very awesome listeners uh, we appreciate all your words of encouragement and um, we thank you tremendously for uh, supporting the show in whatever way you can and hopefully we'll give you a few more ways to do that uh, in the new year of 2024 to come happy holidays everybody more to come stay tuned watch your feeds thank you for listening take care and bye bye